on this episode of In The Rack Podcast. People are, are being told to just rest, ice, elevate if they, they have an injury, no matter what the injury is. That's probably poor advice overall. And my man Gabe actually came out and admitted this in uh, a couple years ago, I think it was 2014. He came out and said he was wrong. Now, more of us need to be like What's What's What you got? Welcome to In The Rack Podcast, where we provide you with a practical framework for breaking PRs in all facets of health and wellness. We are just a couple of bros giving you the simple hows in a world of complex wants. No filters, no scripts, no rules, just straight talk. Talk to them. Now, let's get into the rack with your hosts, Dr. Chad and Dr. Nick. All right, welcome everybody to episode number seven of In The Rack Podcast. I am your host, Chad, and with me is my co-host and fellow physical therapist, Nick. Hope you all enjoyed our last episode on busting some of those nutrition myths. Uh, We talked about saturated fats. We talked about salt and the ever-famous protein debate. Um, So hope that was all informative for you guys. So today, we're not going to be talking about nutrition. Actually, today we're going to be focusing on some of those misconceptions in the rehab world. We're actually going to call this part one of our rehab misconception series. I will admit that I'm not proud of the fact that I'm probably guilty of some of these misconceptions throughout my career, and that's not because I was stupid, although I probably, I'm probably not as smart as, as Dr. Nick, Nick sitting next to me, but we just didn't know any better. And it was not for a lack of knowledge, but more for a lack of research, and research is always changing. So uh, as we become more knowledgeable and more up-to-date on the research, things are becoming more clear. So let's clear up some of these misconceptions. And just to kind of go back on the last episode, we realized we probably put a little bit more time than we needed to on that one. So we're going to shorten this one up for you guys. Uh, We're going to try to keep this one under 30 minutes instead of close to an hour. So it all depends on how uh, anxious and ambitious Nick gets with some of these topics. So we'll see how it goes. So Nick, what's the big misconception for today? All right. So we're going to stick to one. And we're, today we're going to talk about the the idea of don't move your injured area or you will injure it more. All right. So that is very common. And maybe that's not the way that practitioners say it or report it. But that is a lot of times what people are let leave doctor's offices, PT offices and any any healthcare provider's office. They may leave that way feeling that way because of what they were told or the interventions and, and treatments they were given. So it's a big one. Um, it really has been going on for the better better portion of the last probably half a century. You know, and you we can probably date this back to when the RICE protocol was invented. So that's very popular. Most people have probably heard about it. Um, a guy by the name of Gabe Merkin developed that in 1978. And it just stands for rest, ice, compression, and elevation. And that is something that we still hear today that people are, are being told to just rest, ice, elevate if they, they have an injury, no matter what the injury is. That being said, if, if there is any kind of injury aside from, say, probably a fracture or something that's very unstable, that's probably poor advice overall. And my man Gabe actually came out and admitted this in uh, a couple of years ago. I think it was 2014. He came out and said he was wrong. Now, more of us need to be like Gabe. Chad just mentioned it, that he has done some of these things in the past that he doesn't do anymore. That's awesome. That's what we all should do. 
I, my, I, I haven't been practicing quite as long as Chad, but I've done the same thing in my, my short amount of time as a physical therapist. So we all reserve the right to change our minds based on what we learn, how we grow, all that kind of stuff. And that's what we need to do. We need to admit, you know, where our errors were or what we did wrong in the past and change it. And that's fine as long as we, are, you know, are uh, strong enough to make that admission. And Gabe was, but clearly the rest of us are, um, or a lot of people aren't following suit. So there are some better acronyms out there, but you don't necessarily need an acronym. You know, there's there's one I think we were looking at, you know, on, on the internet. There was one, Peace and Love. It's got a lot of different words in there, but they do have load. They have exercise in there, which is great. There was, what was the one you found, Chad? Yeah, so there's meat, which is movement, exercise, analgesia, which is like, you know, NSAIDs, then treatment. And there's also move, which is movement uh, options. So options for like cross training, you know, other types of exercise. Uh, v was very, so very rehabilitation. So strength, balance, agility, whatever, uh, kind of more in our court. And then E was to ease back to activity or kind of get yourself back going into activity as you tolerate it. Yeah. So realistically, if you want to pick an acronym, if you're a provider out there, or even if you're someone at home who's dealing with an injury and you're looking at these acronyms, find one that's got some form of movement in it because movement is crucial to the way your body heals. And that was the big thing that, you know, Gabe Merkin came out and said that my rice protocol was wrong, largely because it delays healing. It's actually inhibiting healing. Whereas a couple of years ago, we thought it was helping with the healing process, but it's actually delaying the healing process. And that's important because if, if you are following this rice protocol, there's a good chance that you've dealt with recurring injury. This injury has come back because if you just rest, yeah, you're going to feel better. But when you return to activity, you're not, it's just going to come right back because you didn't do anything in the meantime to allow your body to heal and adapt. Right. So that brings us in. We mentioned a couple podcasts ago. I think it was like our first or second one. We mentioned, you know, Wolf's law and Davis's law. And those are basically just the the, the anatomy laws of if you load the tissue, Wolf's Law is bone and Davis's Law is, is soft tissue. If you load the tissue, it will respond accordingly. It will adapt to those loads. Same idea that all goes back to what's called the said principle. And that's specific adaptation to impose demands. So if you stress the body in a particular way, it's going to respond accordingly. Okay, so this is the really the most important underlying theme of, of all injuries, issues, pain, anything like that. If someone has a particular goal to be doing a certain activity, we need to start to stress the body in a way that's consistent with that activity so their body can tolerate that activity down the road. In, in the you know, frame of an injury, when, when we're dealing with the injury in the moment, we might not be going you know, at the same level that person was going prior to the injury, but we still need to start to gradually build back that, that tolerance and that capacity for the specific task at, task at hand. So this is crucial in, in really when anybody's thinking about this type of, of thing, whether it's from the perspective of a clinician treating someone with an injury or someone who's dealing with the injury themselves, you have to know that just not moving the area or not using the joint, it's not going to help you heal. It might decrease some symptoms because you're removing the stress, but it's, it's not going to help you heal. You're actually going to um, have what's called a detraining effect. So you're going to lose capacity. You're going to lose your body's strength in that area. And you're going to have to build that back up. And that's going to take time. So if we just immediately 
rest, remove the stress, but don't do anything to, you know, maintain movement and start to maintain strength or even build back strength. We're just going to start to lose that right away. And that's, that's huge. So resting and doing nothing is probably the worst thing you can do. We don't want to do that. Um, we want to, you know, move, move, move the joint, um, you know, start to re-strengthen and do all that kind of stuff, depending on what the injury is. I, this is very much simplified because there's so many different injuries, um, you know, not just, um, you know, musculoskeletal, but you, you can have a, a variety of, you know, chronic injuries and things like that. So, you know, this is very much simplified based on just the overall scope of, of orthopedic injuries or injuries that we see in the physical therapy, in the rehab world. But that is the, the underlying theme is that if you move it, it's actually going to help it heal back stronger as opposed to what we typically think of, okay, it hurts, just don't do anything with it once pain goes away and then start to move it again. Yeah, and kind of going back, we'll backtrack here a little bit. I want to talk about that rice for another second because I know a lot of people are kind of hooked on that. And uh, that was definitely one of the things that I screwed up on early on is I gave everybody ice. And I honestly don't do much ice at all, if any, at this point in time. And when you think about the rice principle and then you think about all the other acronyms that we used, think about the rice as being more of a passive modality. I mean, you're just sitting there, you're resting, or you have compression on, or you have ice on, or you're putting your leg up or arm up in elevation. That's all passive. There's nothing active about that. Nothing. Everything else that we've talked about so far in terms of creating movement is all active. And the research and not only, you know, us in the clinic have been seeing that the active approach is not only more beneficial to um, healing the area, but it's also more beneficial to getting some of these, you know, patients, clients, athletes, whoever they are back to doing what they want to do faster. And like Nick was saying, the, the ices, we'll, we'll talk about this in another podcast, because I think that's worth a little bit more attention, but just to kind of simplify it, like Nick was saying, when you add ice to an area, little research has actually shown that we actually reduce inflammation in that joint. And for somebody to say that they're reducing inflammation is complete hogwash bullshit. We'll call it bullshit. <laughs> and inflammation is how your body heals. So we need Correct. inflammation. So that's, that's why ice can delay healing. But again, Chad mentioned, we're going to have a totally separate podcast on this. This one's strictly about the, that misconception of if we don't move or if something is injured or hurt, don't move it and it'll just heal itself. That's just not, not true. So that's what we're going into today. Um, so with, with that, that concept of, um, I mentioned it before, detraining, Let's dive into that a little bit more. So basically detraining is is your body just losing capacity once a particular load or stimulus is removed. All right, so just easiest example of detraining or, or biggest example that most people know of the detraining concept is in the strength and conditioning world. So if someone is has been lifting for a certain period of time, um, strength training, even you know as little as two days a week, um, they're going to increase strength of certain muscles and if they stop for a period of time, that will, you know, go away, right? They'll lose that ability. So that detraining period is, is a little different for everybody. It's based on a lot of factors, based on the individual body type, that kind of stuff. But there, there was uh, a big study done that had, I think it was all males. They did a strength training regimen for 12 weeks, and then they had them bed rest for a period of time. And the amount of strength they gained in 12 weeks, weeks, they all lost in less than seven days. So you work hard for 12 weeks and it's all gone in one week. Okay. And that doesn't necessarily mean that 
you have to keep doing it to the same level, same intensity every week for the rest of your life. But you need to do stuff to maintain it. So if you take a week from strength training, you should still be moving your body and using your body in a way that's using those muscles that you gain the strength in. Because that is a stimulus to maintain the strength if you're using the body in a similar way. You don't necessarily have to be one rep maxing every week or lifting really, really heavy every week or, you know, running all out every week. You can do things that the, the bare minimum to maintain that. You just can't stop completely. You can't do nothing, right? So this detraining concept can be related to not just your muscles and strength. It can be related to power, explosive movements. It can be re- related to cardiovascular fitness, all that kind of stuff. But I would argue could be more important, but it it is less known or less paid attention to is this idea of like mental detraining. And there's not as much research on this because it's hard to study. It's very easy to study, oh, how much strength did they lose over the, the course over the course of time? Well, that's easy because you just put them through the strength test, right? But the mental side is a little bit more complex and convoluted. But you're gonna have a mental detraining effect as well if you just rest and do nothing. Just think about anyone who has, you know, maybe finished playing a sport. It's been a couple years and they try to go back to it and they feel totally different. They feel like they're going to get hurt. They feel all these things that are abnormal because they haven't done the activity. That's mental detraining, right? Same idea. If I, if someone gets hurt and I say, you know what, just go rest for two weeks. And then I want you to start to, you know, get back into your normal daily life. Well, if you do nothing, say you bed rest for two weeks. Well, when you get up and do the stairs, it's not going to feel right. It's not going to feel normal, right? That's, that's it. Not only physical detraining, but that's mental detraining. And there was some recent research in 2020 that showed that the detraining effect uh, linked to decreased quality of life, decreased functional capacity overall, and decreased sleep quality. That that plays a role in that mental detraining too. Now we're now we're losing sleep, um, quality sleep. So now that's that's increasing our stress. That's decreasing our our, our movement confidence. So it's not just that it delays your healing, it's really impacting everything, which is huge. Yeah, absolutely. And we see this all the time in the clinic too, especially, you know, for, I mean, it doesn't have to be an athlete, but this is where we see it commonly, especially if somebody either had an injury or say had surgery like ACL reconstruction. And like Nick was saying, you know, movement confidence or what we call fear avoidance. So some people don't want to either put um, weight through a leg or through a shoulder or whatever it may be because they're lacking confidence or fear that it's going to hurt or it's going to cause more damage because their last known feeling of that movement was pain. So their body will feel that movement as threatening and all of a sudden they're telling themselves they're having pain before they're even having pain or they may not have pain at all. You know, it could just be they don't want to, you know, hurt themselves anymore or create more damage. So it is a mental barrier for sure to, for, for our patients and clients to get over. Absolutely. And it's just a, th- that whole concept of detraining is um, for our, all our clinicians out there, when you have someone who presents with an injury or maybe they're in a ton of pain, it, maybe it's not the time to totally rest and, and avoid their activity. Let's just try decreasing volume. Let's try decreasing intensity of the activity. You know, so they can still maintain to the lowest degree doing that that particular activity, but they don't stop completely. And then, you know, if you're a listener and, and you're dealing with an injury yourself, think about that. You know, maybe maybe you want to go run, but something's been bothering you. All right, well, maybe we just need to decrease the mileage. Maybe we need to decrease the intensity or maybe we need to, you know, run on a different surface. 
you know, maybe running on the treadmill doesn't hurt as much as running outside or vice versa. So there might be a modification that you can make that will still allow you to participate in the activity without totally shutting it down. Yeah. And if you're creative enough as a physical therapist or movement specialist, then you can actually perform some of these movements without the patient or client actually knowing what they're doing. We had a patient not too long ago that just didn't want to extend her knee after ACL reconstruction. And what did we do? Well, we put her in movements that she knew that she was comfortable with. So Nick had her throwing a basketball or throwing a med ball up and how she had to do that. She had to extend the knee to explode out of that position. She didn't know she was doing the extension, but she was doing it. So it's one of those things where you can occupy the brain doing one thing and then we can take that mental component out of it, hopefully, during the uh, exercise itself. Yep. Just tricking the brain a little bit. It's It can be super powerful. And all, like Chad said, all it takes is a little bit of creativity. And if, if you don't feel like you're a creative person, um, that that's a perfect opportunity to communicate with with colleagues, communicate with with people. I mean, that's, that's a huge reason why social media can be so impactful is because you can communicate with someone across the world, you know, about these types of things and they can give you ideas or vice versa and and you can learn from that they can learn from you all that kind of stuff so there's something you can do if you don't feel creative enough reach out to people ask you know we do it all the time we reach out to people um people reach out to us and 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 everything like that so there's a way you can do it you just have to be willing to put in the work a little bit so big big two big things we're going to discuss because we're not just going to talk about this as a you know, just broad issue. We're going to get into, you know, more specific topics that listeners have definitely dealt with um, or are currently dealing with. And those are what would be diagnosed as tendonitis. And the other one is arthritis. We're going to talk about those. We'll start with tendonitis. Tendonitis name, not great. Uh, we, we've seen over and over again that a lot of times it's not actual inflammation. It might be inflammation early on, but that inflammation does not last for a very long time. There's actually structural changes in the tendon. So, um, there's better names, tendinopathy, tendinosis, but for the sake of this podcast, we'll probably just stick to tendonitis because that's what most resonates with most people. And and I know Chad's going to touch upon the names in, in a minute too, but I, with, with the whole t- tendonitis um, topic, there has been in the last really two decades, there's been a ton of research coming out on, on this whole um, tendinopathy, like I was saying before, where it's not just inflammation the whole time. There's actually structural changes in the tendon. So what happens and, and what they're referring to it in the research is it's called a stress shield. So think about lanes, right? So there's there's these these different lanes, just like on a on a road or a highway. And when there's an injury or some kind of trauma to a part, one of the lanes of the tendon, the body goes into protective mode and it says, All right, let's shield this lane off. Okay. So now for that time being, while that's injured, while the body tries to heal that, it's going to shield off that part of the tendon. The problem is, is that prote- protective mechanism is is really protective. It's really strong, especially for our tendons, right? So if we don't do anything to, if we don't make any changes and, and say we just rest and then we return to activity, your body's not going to actually remove that shield. It's going to keep it because it's worried that this might happen again. So it's going to keep that shield in place. So now that lane is completely blocked off forever until we do something to say, oh man, this this road is getting really jam-packed. We need to open that lane back up. We need that lane. So what we need to do is we need to fatigue the other lanes so the body has a reason to open that lane back up so we can now use that again down the road. Yes, it needs to heal, 
but a lot of times it will heal in a much shorter time than you know what we think uh, people deal with tendon issues for months but that tissue is probably healed in a fraction of that time we're just still dealing with that stress shield so that shield's still put up so now we're operating with less of a tendon okay and that's important because we like i said we need to do the, go back to the said principle we need to impose some kind of demand on this tendon so we break that shield down once the tissue is healed and we start to use the full tendon again and that's where you know, for something like tendons, something like isometrics can be great because you do a prolonged hold, say you do 30 seconds. Well, the other parts of the tendon are going to fatigue after a certain point while I'm holding, a, a, you know, a certain amount of weight or body weight, whatever the case is. And my body's going to say, oh, we need some help. So it's going to break that protective shield down, start to use that that tendon, that, that, that lane that was once injured. And we gradually start to build that back up. Now, the interesting thing about the tendon research is there was a really cool study. They followed a professional basketball player for a period of time. They saw an MRI. They could see the change, the structural change in the tendon. So they knew this individual had a, a previous trauma. They had the tendon shield in place. And that tendon did not return to what would be considered normal appearance on the image for 18 months. And this individual did a series of you know isometric exercises every day for the for the duration of the time but the reality of it is is that it takes a long time to to for that body to adapt however that individual did not stop playing basketball that individual kept playing dealt with pain on and off but they managed the pain and then they kept up with the movement and the exercise routine and that was the the big thing is that yes it takes a long time but that doesn't mean we stop if that individual went by the rice method they're they're shut down for 18 months they they miss a full season and a half and then what next well now they're just way detrained right their 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 capacity is so low they're probably not even a professional level player anymore so now they have to build that back up and you're looking at years down the road before they actually you know get back to that level so if we just go rice protocol on that i mean they're they're done their career is basically over so it, it doesn't make any sense we need to move and and exercise or um you know, target the tissue in a way that will help it build back up. Yeah, I, th I think that stress shield concept is is a good way to put it. And um, it kind of breaks it down to the point where we can understand that, okay, I get it now, because if we're not using all of the tendon, then we're not adapting the full tendon to the stress that you're applying to it. So um, it's a good way to create those adaptations in the tissue so that your body can be able to take those stresses. So, I mean, like, like Nick was saying, I mean, this doesn't just apply to these professional athletes. They have the same body everybody else does. So uh, this applies to everybody, you know, just because they're a professional athlete and they're doing active type of movement drills or whatever uh, with their trainer or their PT or their, you know, movement specialist doesn't mean that it's not applicable to you either, you know? So I think we just have to keep that in mind and kind of going a little bit more into depth not too much more into depth, but I, I do want to touch upon this tendonitis and tendinopathy or tendinosis that Nick was talking about, because it is something that even throughout my career has changed quite a bit. We were always under the stipulation that everything was a tendonitis. Tendinopathy wasn't even a thing really when I was in school. It, nobody really even used tendinosis. It was kind of like a fairy tale. Um, and I was in school. I remember we had these case studies and this one kid in my class, he was talking about this elbow, this tennis elbow, lateral epicondylitis. And he diagnosed it as a uh, tendonitis. 
And back then I had a great mentor at the time and we had already talked about this. And my question for him was, how do you know that it was a tendonitis and not a tendinopathy? He, and the professor got so pissed off at me because he was like, what do you mean? And so um, it, back then it wasn't even a thing. So it, it was kind of being used interchangeably and that's not correct. Does it really matter in the end? I don't know. It's debatable. But what I will say is the time frame may matter. So tendonitis is probably the better of the situations. Tendinopathy is a more chronic situation. It's more of like your overuse injury. So we actually just had a, a patient that came in last week and she had uh, a golf lesson. And the golf lesson, she was totally fine. After the golf lesson, she had all this lateral elbow pain, which if she went to a doctor, they would have been like, yep, this is tendonitis. This is tendonitis right here. Maybe it is. Maybe it's not. I don't know how you can determine that without actually diagnosing it through differential diagnosis. So like an MRI or an ultrasound, because there's no way you're going to know if there's inflammation in there. I can't feel it. I mean, I don't know. Can you feel it, Nick? Okay. I, <laughs> it's too it's too microscopic. You can't. Um, but an overuse injury like that is usually described as a tendinopathy and not as a tendonitis. So um, I just wanted to clarify the difference in terms of the two, because they are getting used a little bit more as the same, but they're not the same. So like, like I was saying, does it, does it really matter? Uh, we're still going to treat the body, so it doesn't really matter. We're going to find out what caused that in the first place. So in terms of the actual definition, it's not super important, but just know that there is a difference. And I think it's also important for us to touch upon particular exercises that may be given for someone with these tendon issues, because they are, they can be tricky. Um, and the analogy I use for people a lot of times when you're doing specific exercises targeting your tendons when they're in a pain state is like dipping your toes in the water. Like if you get in a pool or the ocean and it's cold at first and you almost have that urge to go, go back, get out, right? But then you go in, you get your head under and your body gets used to it. And then, you know, you're fine for a little bit. And then there comes a time if you're in there long enough that you get cold again. Same idea if you're exercising targeting the tendons. If you're, if you're working that tissue the first couple of reps probably won't feel very good. And a lot of people are deterred from that. They don't want to push through that. But with tendons, most times it's okay. And you push through that and your body gets used to it. And then the next couple of reps actually feel good. And the next couple of sets actually feel good. Then if you were to continue to push, there might be a time that comes that it starts to not feel good again. And that's probably a good indication that you've done enough, right? Maybe a few reps into that, that later range. But that's probably a good indication that, okay, now it's time to stop. And that's a good way to think about when you're working your tendons. Don't be deterred by the first, you know, little bit of activity being uncomfortable or even painful. Don't let it stop you from it. Test the waters a little bit. It's, it's, a, it's unfortunately a little trial and error, but you got you to gotta test it out and say, okay, is it going to continue to hurt? If it continues to hurt and it continues to intensify, yeah, probably not ready for it yet. But if it starts to, you know, dwindle down and, and go away a little bit, yeah, keep going. That's, that's a good indication that your body is now um, potentially breaking those, me protective me those overprotective mechanisms down and starting to build tissue back up, you know, and allowing you to adapt the body in the particular way that, that allows you to perform the activities you want to perform. So I think that's important for people to know when it comes to exercising specifically regarding, you know, based around the tendons themselves. Um, so now we move into, oh, arthritis. Arthritis. Who oh. doesn't have arthritis? I think everybody has arthritis. Right? Yeah, I think so too. And that's a funny name too, arthritis. So that, that implies that there's inflammation in the joint. And 
there's there's a lot of research that shows that there's inflammatory markers, but in terms of what we think of as palpable or vis- visual visible swelling, it's usually not there. It's usually if there is any inflammation, it's pretty deep. It's it's like Chad said, microscopic. So it's more so the the inflammatory markers in the body. But arthritis, it's it's absolutely a big issue today. Um, there there's a lot of people. Um, that are dealing with pain based around in, in arthritic joint, you know, and that's where it becomes problematic. But the reality of it is, is that arthritis is, you know, a, a diagnosable issue, but oftentimes it's not diagnosed till there's pain. And I would venture that most times the arthritis is present well before there's pain. So how can we then say, oh, you're in my office today for the pain here? Oh, yeah, it's this arthritis. Look at this image. But if that arthritis was present well before, how can we say that it's now causing pain? It's not that simple. Could it play a role? Absolutely, right? We have decreased space in the joint. There's there's less fluid a lot of times. You know, there, there's these issues around it that could absolutely put someone in a pain state, but we can't just blame it on arthritis, okay? So even though arthritis is affecting a large portion of the worldwide population, um, we, we have a stigma, we have stigmatized it to make people, oh, I have arthritis, man. I, I, I guess I got to stop running. I guess I got to stop doing this activity because doc said it's, it's going to hurt me. Um, so that's, that's the big issue based around arthritis. And one of the best things we can do, we're starting to see the research come out about it is move the joint and work the joint. And what I mean by work the joint is start to strengthen around it and stress the joint to some extent. Cause what arthritis comes down to is, is, it's a balance. So every cell in your body is basically in a balanced state of catabolism and anabolism. Okay. So basically that just means catabolism is breaking down and and like anabolic, anabolic steroids, right? They build you up. So it's, it's in a state of breaking down and building back up all the tissues in your body. So they're breaking down and building back up. How do we stimulate things to build back up? Well, we need to give them a, some kind of trigger or stimulus to get stronger, to grow, to do something, right? So if we're in this balanced state, when you stop moving, you become catabolic. So you start to break things down that you don't need. So if we have an arthritic knee and we just say, oh, just, you know, stop running, stop bending the knee, stop, don't do lunges, don't do squats, don't do all that. Those are all things that strengthen the knee. They make the knee anabolic. We've just removed all the anabolic stimulus and created a, a catabolic environment for that knee. That's very problematic. So that is only going to intensify or worsen the arthritis. It's not going to help you, you know, build back up around that knee. So that's that's the big kind of overarching theme. We need the, you know, anabolic processes to outweigh this, you know, catabolism that's taken over. So we need to move in order to do that. And there's been plenty of research showing us that there is decreased growth factors and decreased chondrocytes. Chondrocytes are the, the um, cells that basically stimulate cartilage growth. So there's decreased growth factors and chondrocytes in arthritic joints. That makes sense, right? How do we increase chondrocytes in growth hormone or growth factors? Strength training, uh, you know, even cardiovascular running can do it. So all of these things that we're being deterred from doing actually help the arthritis. So it's it's a little a little crazy the world um, based around arthritis right now, but we we need we can change it. It's it's simple to change because it doesn't require any any tools, any specific medication. 
you know, and, and most of our research that's coming out is based around, oh, what drug can we make now that we know that there's decreased growth factors in chondrocytes? What drug can we make to increase those things? Well, the drug's in your own hands, everybody. It's called movement. Exactly. Go, go move the joint a little bit. Maybe do some squats, you know, sit up, you know, sit, sit to stand from your couch. Uh, you know, do some lunges. Even if you have to hold on to something, do some lunges. That will increase growth hormone and chondrocyte activity in your joints. I promise you. That, that, is, that is well known. Okay, so the, the pharmaceutical stuff, the drugs can, can help with symptoms, but just know that that's not going to stop the catabolic processes from occurring. Your body is way more complex than that. If we're not stimulating with anabolic activity, then it's just going to stay catabolic. It's going to stay in that breakdown mode. So that is super important. Keep moving people. Um, but another thing with, um, with, with arthritis is, is this whole idea that, that running is going to worsen or cause it. There's actually a good amount of research that shows that running can actually fend off arthritis in, in spe- specifically in the knee. That's the biggest one for runners. But we have so many people that come here and are told, oh, you have arthritis in your knee. Yeah, just stop running and, and you'll probably be good. You won't need a knee replacement for a while. That's not very good advice at all, especially if that individual wants to run. That's actually terrible advice if that individual wants to run. If that individual doesn't care about running, uh, whatever, you know. But if that individual lo- loves to run and that's that's their outlet, that's their the, the, the activity that they love to do, well, we need to find a way to help them run. That They, they need that for more, more factors than just stimulating cartilage growth in their knee. They need that for, for mental health, to stay cardiovascularly fit, all that kind of stuff. So that individual needs running. And there is no indication that there's more arthritis in running populations compared to, you know, non-running populations. Actually, there's some data that shows that the, the non-runners actually have higher rates of it. And what they have is actually higher rates of symptomatic arthritis, whereas runners may have the arthritis present, but a lot of times it's asymptomatic. And you could argue that it's asymptomatic because they've continued to stress their joints in a way that allows them to stay strong and adapt to the demands that they are putting on on their body. Yeah, and I want to clarify, Nick is referring mostly to osteoarthritis. There's about a thousand different types of arthritis out there. Yeah, that's true. Um, I, we, we should have said that from rheumatoid, psoriatic. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but 90% of the people that we see have osteo and, and 90% of the population probably have osteoarthritis as well. So, um, And most of the time when you go to the doctor and they tell you you have arthritis, if they just say arthritis, they're probably referring to osteo. They would, they would clarify if it were rheumatoid or psoriatic. If it were some other form, they would probably clarify with that particular name. But if they just say arthritis, there's a good chance it's osteoarthritis. Yeah, exactly. And, and just to kind of piggyback on what Nick just said about, about the osteoarthritis, it, we want to just kind of clarify that osteoarthritis is, is not technically a disease, even though they want to classify it like that. Um, and they try to throw these fancy words in there like degenerative and disc and disease all in the same fucking sentence. So now, now you think you not only have a disease, but you're degenerative in nature. So that's great. But it's, it's a fancy word for arthritis that Nick, like Nick said, has probably been there for years. And I can't tell you how many people that we have come into the clinic that all of a sudden have pain, but they haven't had pain for 20 years, or maybe they're a marathon runner and they're all of a sudden now having pain, but because they have signs of arthritis on an x-ray, it's the arthritis that's causing the pain. Doubtful. Super doubtful. Um, it, it, could it be a, could it be symptomatic? Maybe. Um, is that the reason why they're having pain? 
most likely not. Um, so I, I wanted to kind of clarify that as well. And I know that some of you out there are thinking, but it's genetic. My dad had it. My mom had it. My sister has it. That means I have it. I mean, how many times do we hear that? Dude, my, my dad has the worst back. I know I'm going to get it. Dude, this is not genetic disease. So, and, and again, we're talking about osteoarthritis. So there has been no indication that we are aware of that there is a particular gene that is linked to osteoarthritis that we know of. Um, there are components, but again, like Nick was saying, there's inflammatory markers and everything like that, but there's not one gene that we know of that is going to say that you have osteoarthritis, like say a, a rheumatoid arthritis is a different story. Um, osteoarthritis is a totally different animal. So I just wanted to clarify that for all of you out there that are thinking, well, I'm, I'm screwed because my dad had it. And I would say that there is, there's probably genetic predispositions Totally. You know, but those are based around lifestyle, right? You, you see monkey see, monkey do, right? You see your parents live a particular way. You live that way. You see them move a particular way because the way you move can absolutely cause certain part because really all arthritis is, is your body laying down more bone in a specific area because there's been more friction or pressure in that area, right? So if you move a certain way, yeah, it could cause arthritis in a certain area or even take, we love talking about feet, right? Take footwear. If you wear a certain type of footwear for an extended period of time, yeah, that could change the joint loads, which could then lead to some arthritic changes in the joint if we're constantly wearing those shoes, right? So you can make a case for a lot of different things. And that's the reality of it is there's so many factors. So does genetics play a role? Absolutely. But it's a much smaller role than when you go to the doctor and it's like, oh, did your mom have arthritis? How about your grandma? Oh, yeah, no, it's it's clearly the arthritis. That's not fair to say because now you're putting you're you're, you're claiming that arthritis is is being totally caused by genetics. There's no way out of this. It's you're going to get it. Your mom had it. Your grandma had it. Everybody had it. You're just going to have to deal with it and you're going to have to stop doing this activity because of this. That's just that's not fair to people to say that. And, you know. That's the whole basis of this podcast is like, okay, we know movement can help arthritis. So let's freaking move. Let's get moving. Let's get strengthening those joints. And yeah, it's not going to get rid of the arthritic changes that have already taken place. But if we get a better functioning joint, who the hell cares if there's still arthritis in there? It, it means nothing. Yeah. And, and arthritis, don't forget, is a normal effect of aging. It's it's this great thing that we have on earth called gravity. And once we have gravity into our lives, now, of course, things are going to get closer to touching each other because now we have compression joints and, and so forth. So it's normal for us to all have some signs of arthritis. It's just, are we symptomatic or not? And, um, you know, is, is that in fact causing our pain? You know, in, in some instances it might be, and some it's not. But I think we just want to be a little bit more clear on on the the actual definition of arthritis and how it's affecting us in our daily lives. So, yeah. and uh, one more thing, I know we're probably going a little longer than we wanted to, but I just got to throw this in there. There, so this is actually a funny study. So they they studied research, they studied other studies, and it was mainly in the healthcare realm. They wanted to see how long it took to study a particular intervention or treatment and see how long it took for it to become kind of mainstream, right? So basically how long it would take, how many studies it would take to for the, the large proportion of people to implement this as common practice. And it was the average, I think, was 17 years that it took in the research for something to become common. Now, the research is coming out on how beneficial exercise and movement 
And even just something as simple as education, proper education can be for um, osteoarthritis, even down to nutrition, losing weight is huge for osteoarthritis. So those strategies are starting to come out in the research. But if, if you want to wait 17 years to, as a clinician, use those types of treatments, and then as a person dealing with osteoarthritis, wait 17 years to implement them yourselves, go right ahead. But we're not going to wait that long because if it's going to take 17 years for that to be common, I mean, there's going to be a lot more people that are being led down the wrong path and a lot more people that are struggling with arthritis than, than we want them to be. So let's, let's start this right now. You know, you're not, you're not going to hurt anybody more with, with some movement, some, some exercise. You could hurt people with exercise, but just don't be stupid, right? Be smart and let's move. Let's get exercising and let's help people now instead of waiting. 17 yeah. And by the time 17 years comes around, you're going to realize you're 17 years behind shit because something else has probably already come out by then. Every, every two, three, five. By then years. we will, by then we will have the drug to increase contraceptives. <laughs> so we'll just, we'll be fine by then. Yeah. Um, okay. So I think we've, we've covered enough here today. Um, and I think for all of you that are listening to this episode, I, I think the big takeaway here is don't be afraid to move, whether it's after an injury or after surgery, all depending on the situation, you know, especially if it pertains to arthritis and tendonitis or quote unquote tendinosis. Um, this is not only going to help you progress faster, but it's also a better way to move. And it's, it's, it's the right thing to do for sure. All right. So I think we buried rest. I think that's good. I said, let's not rest, let's move. So, um, stop resting, get off the couch, move a little bit. So what do we got coming up next? We have our first guest speaker coming up on our next episode, which we're super stoked about. We wanted to start off with this amazing woman. Her name is uh, Megan Kinsey. And for all of you that don't know who Megan Kinsey is, if you're local and you do, um, she's the owner, lead instructor, and nutrition coach of a studio in Amesbury called Motivate. This woman is a ball of energy. It's wild. I've never seen someone, like she has more energy than my kids and my kids are seven and five. So it's it's going to be a fun day, but I will say that it's not the first table that we've all sat around, which um, it kind of makes me worried because <laughs> we've we've had some interesting conversations for sure around a table. So I wish I could predict what's going to happen, but I, I just can't. You know, there was even talk of doing tequila shots prior to the episode. So we'll see what happens there. If we do that, we'll make sure to get that on video. For all of you that don't know me, I don't drink. So this could be fun. It's going to be an exciting one. And, and we're going to chat with her not only about her business, but we're going to pick her brain a little bit. She is a wealth of knowledge. She doesn't think so, but she is. And I know that we can all benefit greatly from the conversation that we're going to have with her for sure. Um, so today, let's, let's finish with the moral of the story. The moral of the story is we need to move. We need to move more. Throw that rice theory out the window. And at the end of the day, remember that movement is medicine. And I'm going to leave you with this quote from Albert Einstein. Nothing happens until something moves. Thank you for joining us in the rack this week. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes. You can also find us online at proformptma.com or on social media at proformptma. And remember, if you train inside the rack, you better be thinking outside the rack.